This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned in to our board slash our OITE review series. Well, still, we're going to continue on about some hand trauma, but we're going to talk a little bit more about some wrist injuries. You know, we're just going to continue on forth. And if you have not already, check out the podcast companion book that you can get on Amazon. The link is literally in the description for every single one of these episodes. So we will see you all soon and we hope that you enjoy the episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, what are some complications seen with external fixation of distal radius fractures? I think I've seen two of these in residency. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw one and it was in one of those patients where they had an open distal radius fracture, but also bad uh, intra-abdominal injuries. So while they were working on the abdomen, we just kind of did a no C-arm, no X-ray, external fixation of the radius, and then revise them a week and a half later. But uh, so complications, obviously you don't have as good of fragment control with external fixation, just like when you X-fix distal femur or proximal tibia fracture or anything like that. You can get fracture subsidence. You can get stiffness of the fingers and then pin site infections. And obviously if you're putting the, the pins in, you typically will put pins into the metacarpal and then pins into the distal radial shaft, depending on how far proximal that distal radius fracture propagates, you can get superficial radial nerve complications, and you can also ding some of the extensor tendons. And then going back to your, the, the thing that you talked about with volar plating, they probably won't test on this, even though I think that they maybe should, but there's something called the SOONG classification, S-O-O-N-G, and this talks about how prominent the volar plate is in relation to the volar lip of the distal radius and the likelihood of FPL rupture. So if the plate sits more volar than the volar lip of the radius, you have a higher incidence of FPL ruptures compared to a plate that sits even or kind of deeper than the volar lip of the bone. And basically what that's showing is that a prominent plate is going to rub on the FPL more, but if the plate sits below the surface of the bone or below the volar aspect of the distal radius, then the FPL is going to just rub over the natural anatomy and not have a likelihood of, of rupturing. So it's S-O-O-N-G for those who want to look it up. It's a pretty basic classification system. It's just looking at where the volar plate position is and likelihood of FPL rupture. So one little extra point there. So, and then what are some of the indications and advantages of dorsal spanning plates? 
Yeah, and, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier when you were talking about uh, the lady that you put a, a dorsal bridge plate on, but, you know, indications for this are going to be like high fracture comminution, like a, a lot of comminution. Patients that are, you know, that are polytrauma patients where they, they may need to try to bear some weight through that extremity. And then also, you know, these patients that have these distal radius fractures that have significant diaphyseal extension. The advantages to using a dorsal bridge plating is that it increases the axial load stiffness. Again, so if, you're, if your patients are using these, using their hands to bear weight, not walking on their hands, but using their hands like with, with a rolling walker or something. Mm-hmm. Or one of our attending is like, patients don't walk on their hands. I know I always say bear weight, but, but <laughs> if they're using like a rolling walker to put some weight through that extremity. And, and typically with, you know, dorsal bridge plating is typically a like a 3.5 millimeter plate that's attached to the radius. And then it's also either attached to the, the third metacarpal or the second metacarpal. And there are some, I guess, advantages in choosing, you know, the second and the third metacarpal to attach the dorsal bridge plate to. I hope they, I don't think they'll test on that, but. but yeah, they should. And because yeah. both of them are acceptable. I choose the second. So I choose a metacarpal under the index finger because you have, in my opinion, you have less chance of extensor tendon rupture or extensor tendon damage during the plating because you if you're looking at your hand right now and you push down on that first metacarpal at least on my hand the extensor tendon moves ulnar to that metacarpal and so i can hit the bone without hitting my tendon but that's not the same case with my middle finger like we do with closed reduction of the distal radius fractures we aim for that kind of ulnar deviation because it helps you get that radial height and that styloid more distal. And I like to to go to the second because when you fix them, they do tend to fix in a little bit of ulnar deviation to help get that radial height back. So, but I am by no means a hand and wrist expert. That's just, it makes <laughs> intuitive sense to me. So that's why I do it that way. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's very true. But yeah, that's how I do it. And then what type of distal radius fracture would bridge planing be contraindicated? Yeah, so these are going to be the patients that have like that palmar lunate facet fractures. And, and like, I think the best way to see this is they may show you like a lateral x-ray and you'll see a piece of the distal radius as well as the lunate following it. And it may be uh, a little bit vulnerably displaced. And if you think about it, you're not going to be able to catch that fragment with the dorsal bridge plate. So again, bridge plating would be contraindicated in patients that have these palmar lunate facet fractures or these volar marginal rim fractures. I guess we kind of briefly touched on this a little bit earlier, but what is a radial styloid fracture called and what are some maybe associated injuries? So that would be a chauffeur fracture. And you can see scaphalunate ligament injuries with that, similar to, and how I remember that is how you can also see that progression. And we'll talk about it later on with the progression for chronic scaphalunate ligament injuries like a snack wrist and a slack wrist. So they're all associated with the radial styloid. So anytime you have a radial styloid fracture or arthritis, you're going to be looking for the scaphalunate ligament injury. And then if the intraarticular displacement is greater than two millimeters, you can obviously that that would be an indication to fix this. And then you can either use single screw or a fragment specific plate or a K wire to hold that radial styloid in place. And then uh, going away from the bony injuries to the soft tissue injuries, what is the TFCC and where are its attachments? 
Yes, this is going to be the triangular fibrocartilage complex. That's the TFCC. And this is between kind of the, the radial, the radius and the ulnar. So it has radial ulnar, the, the, kind of the radial ulnar ligaments. And so they're superficial fibers and they're deep fibers. So the superficial fibers of the, again, this fibrocartilage complex attached to the to styloid, the ulnar styloid. And the deep fibers attached to the fovea. And the deep fibers are the key fibers that play the greater part or the greater role in distal radial ulnar joint instability versus the superficial. So if you have injury again to these deep TFCC fibers that insert on the fovea, that can lead to a little bit more incidence of DRUJ instability. And we'll talk a little bit later more about the TFCC and and ways to fix it and with wrist arthroscopy and you know all that good stuff. The very tip, the mid portion, the base or an oblique fracture through the base. And the base is the most common and most are treated non-operatively if the DRUJ is stable. And that's really tested. It's, it's difficult to test in somebody who's being acutely reduced in the ER, but these are going to be uh, tested either several weeks post-op or intra-op with say, if you decide to fix the distal radius fracture and and see if you need to actually treat the ulnar styloid fracture because just like you were talking about with the TFCC, that it attaches at that ulnar styloid. So if there's instability there, then you can then lead to TFCC injuries. And if you have an oblique fracture at the base, you have an increased incidence of foveal disruption and DRUJ instability. So those are kind of key things to look for in your x-rays and discussion with the patients. And what is the treatment of a DRUJ dislocation? Yeah, so this is going to be closed reduction and immobilization. And uh, it's, it's strange. Sometimes we've had just isolated DRUJ dislocations, which we've been consulted for. And a lot of times ED can do it, or sometimes you know, our residents will go down and do it. But for the thing to note about it is for dorsal dislocations, where the owner is dislocated dorsally, when you reduce them, you immobilize them in supination. But for volar dislocations, you actually immobilize those in pronation. Now, I think there was actually a question about which way to immobilize this in supination or pronation, depending on, again, the direction of the dislocation. So dorsal dislocations immobilize in supination and volar dislocations immobilize in pronation. Now, what percent of axial force, if we're kind of looking at the mechanics of the wrist, what percent of the axial force is transmitted to the ulna at the wrist? You know, and, and we're talking about kind of a wrist that has neutral variance. So that would be about 20%. So majority goes through the distal radius, but you do still have some that goes through the ulna, about 20%. And if you have increased ulnar variance by even just two millimeters, you get a 40% transmission to the ulna. So it doubles with that just even two millimeters of that ulna being just a little bit more prominent than the than the distal radius and you can see that in distal radius malunions or distal radius shortening so those ones that's why they're going to complain of ulnar sided wrist pain because the ulna just isn't used to taking on that sort of load and so what are acute tfcc tears associated with yeah, so this is going to be associated with avulsions of the TFCC ligaments at the ulna periphery. And it's kind of similar to think about it. And if you think about how you're repairing your meniscuses or your menisci, I'm sorry, 
So if you have a really a peripheral tear that has good blood supply, you may be actually able to repair those versus if you have one that's more central or in that, you know, that central third, those are the ones where you do kind of a meniscectomy and, and very similar things here with the TFCC. So ones that are avulsions at the periphery, you can fix those. The ones at the more central area, those are the ones where you may just actually just remove a little, a little piece of that when you're doing like a wrist arthroscopy, for example. Now, what... What chronic, uh, what condition are chronic TFCCs associated with? That's going to be ulnar impaction syndrome. And I, I briefly kind of touched on that with some of the distal radius malunion and shortening. You get that ulna that's too prominent. And anytime they do ulnar deviation or extension of the wrist, they're going to impinge on that ulna. And kind of goes into this, to this next question is ulnar sided wrist pain with wrist extension and ulnar deviation is going to be that ulnar impaction syndrome. And you're going to diagnose this with a true PA x-ray of the wrist. That's going to give you the best kind of visualization of how far distal or how much ulnar, positive ulnar variance you have. And then on MRI, you can see uh, edema within the lunate, if it's kind of an acute thing versus uh, chronic degenerative uh, changes in the lunate, if it's more of a chronic uh, issue. And for this ulnocarpal impaction syndrome, what are some of the treatment options? One is, you know, with everything you can do nothing or treat it non-operatively. I shouldn't say doing nothing is treating it non-operatively, but there's some non-operative treatments that you can do. But we're talking a little bit more on the surgical side of things. For these patients that have these ulnocarpal impaction, you can do a wrist, wrist arthroscopy with TFCC debridement. Again, so because we talked about a little bit earlier that ulnocarpal impaction syndrome is associated with chronic TFCC tears. So you get, you can debride the TFCC. You can actually remove the distal ulna arthroscopically, removing the distal ulna. And you can also do an ulnar shortening osteotomy where you shorten the ulna itself. But in patients with arthritis, this is contraindicated. And one of the things I think that I saw that they may show you is like an MRI. They'll show you like a coronal cut of an MRI of a wrist. And in an ulna impaction syndrome, you may see some like increased edema, like in the lunate, for example, one of the carpal bones. And they'll have you try to differentiate that between like AVN of the lunate or like Kindbox disease, which it'll be like diffusely it'll be like diffusely like edema and, and necrotic versus this may, you might see like a, some edema on the, on the distal ulna and then some edema on the lunate, for example. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS part one exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the resident orthopedic core knowledge program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access Rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. And moving forth, I guess just just kind of transitioning that we've done the the wrist or we've done the distal radius, you know, you know, injuries, and moving forward to carpal fractures. What is the most commonly injured carpal bone? 
that would be the scaphoid and it would be right at the waist of the scaphoid. So a, a mid scaphoid fracture is the, is the most common injured bone and it's always or almost always done with the wrist and extension and radial deviation as there's an axial load applied to it is and that's it's fairly it's not fairly common but you can see a kind of combined distal radius and scaphoid waist fracture and what are some of the physical exam findings that are positive in patients with scaphoid fractures yeah, so the classic snuff box tenderness or a, a tenderness on a snuff box and the tubercle and pain with an axial load. And so so what are what are some x-rays that may be useful for diagnosing these scaphoid fractures? Yeah, the I mean if it's really displaced, you'll see it on just a standard AP or PA view of the wrist, but the scaphoid view is best for getting the long axis of the scaphoid in in the x-ray and that how that's done is with the wrist slightly extended and ulnarly deviated it's going to really bring that scaphoid into full view so you can see if there's a fracture there and where that fracture is located but let's say x-rays look okay there's no distal radius fracture but on exam they have some snuff box tenderness what what are some of the other imaging studies that you could try to diagnose a scaphoid fracture yeah, so you can get an MRI. So an MRI is really sensitive and specific for diagnosing these scaphoid fractures. But you could also get a CT scan, but that's a little bit better for like evaluating the bony morphology or the amount of displacement. So MRIs are really sensitive. So for example, you have some athlete that you know you you think has a scaphoid fracture, but nothing's there on X-rays, and it's like, should you let him go back and play? It's like, no, get an MRI first and and see you know if the scaphoid is fractured. And in in how much is the scaphoid is actually covered by cartilage? Is it is it a lot, a little bit, or you know how much? Yeah, of it? it's pretty much the whole bone, about eighty percent of it. And this has implications for blood supply, which we'll cover right now. But but yeah, so because it's mostly covered by cartilage, that means that it has the least ability to receive blood flow. So how does it receive its blood supply? Yeah, it's going to be via like a retrograde flow. So you had dorsal, you have these dorsal ridge vessels that contribute almost most of the blood supply. So like 70% or so. And so with these injuries, the proximal pole of the scaphoid has a limited amount of blood supply. So again, this is going to be a retrograde flow coming in from the dorsal ridge vessels. So if you think about it, the, I guess, watershed region or the, the areas that has the least amount of blood supply would be the proximal pole. And uh, if you all want a deeper dive into scaphoid fractures, check out our, our episode with uh, Dr. Roberts. She did a great job breaking all of this down and, and going in depth about scaphoid fractures. But how much displacement is considered displaced in scaphoid fractures? So this would be around one millimeter is considered displaced. And there's one attending where I'm at and where I'm at, where I did residency, where he pretty much his thought on it, and it's not scientific, so don't go basing all of your clinical decisions off of this. But he basically said that if you can see the fracture on x-ray, that means it's displaced, that x-ray is going to pick up the one millimeter displacement. And so he very rarely will get advanced imaging. If you can see a fracture on x-ray, he'll just go ahead and 
and discuss treatment options with the patient at that time rather than getting an MRI or a CT scan. So and that's how he kind of bases his guide off of. But yeah, that whereas other areas we talk about two millimeters or even three three millimeters of displacement, we're we're getting into a bone that's really not that big. So anything that's displaced greater than one millimeter is going to be displaced. We hope that you enjoyed listening to that episode of the Nailed Ortho podcast. We really talked about some wrist injuries, some ligament injuries, and we're going to continue more talking about hand and some hand and wrist trauma. So just stay tuned and tell a friend about this podcast because that would help us out a bunch. And uh, until next time.